Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Yegel about Khmer nationalist Son Yok Tan, the CIA, and the transformation of Cambodia, out with Cornell University Press 2023. Khmer Nationalist is a political history of Cambodia from World War II until 1975, examining the central role of Sun Yok Tan. The book is an the book is the story of nationalist independence movements, political intrigue, coup attempts, war, and American intelligence operations. Matthew Yegel shows how central uh, how central Sun Yok Tan was to the rise of Cambodian nationalism, the brief period of Japanese dominance, the fight for independence from France and the establishment of ties with the United States. Factoring Sun Yat-ton into a discussion of Cambodian political history is a major contribution that will advance scholarly discourse about Cold War politics in Southeast Asia. Sun Yat-ton's career requires us to think about pre-Khmer Rouge Cambodia with much greater nuance. Dr. Matthew, Ye- Matthew Yeagle. Hey, Matt, I'm sorry. Is it Yeagle or, or am I mispronouncing Yeagle. your name? Yeagle. Okay, are, it is Yeagle. Yeah, okay. It is Yeagle. Sorry, people, we'll leave that in there. Uh, Dr. Matthew Yeagle earned his MA at Northern Illinois University with a thesis entitled uh, Phil Kak, um, The History of Filipino Involvement in the Vietnam War, and his PhD with a dissertation on Sun Yok Tong, obviously the source material for this book. In 2011-2012, he had a Fulbright and a Center for uh, Khmer Studies uh, Fellowship for Research in Cambodia. Khmer Nationalist, Sun Yat-Tong, the CIA, and the Transformation of Cambodia, uh, out with Cornell, is his first book. Uh, he has taught at Northern Illinois University and worked for NIU's Center for Southeast Asian Studies. He currently teaches at St. Xavier University in Chicago. When he's not doing all this amazing work, he's causing trouble with Dr. Eric Jones, his co-host and unindicted co-conspirator on Napalm in the Morning, the Vietnam War Through Film a podcast that asks serious questions such as why is John Wayne facing the wrong way at sunset in the Green Berets and also praises the artistic triumph that is Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh, Dr. Matthew Yeagle, Matt, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Good morning, campers. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. I very much appreciate it. It's great to talk to you and looking forward to chatting a bit about, you know, that labor of love slash hate for the past 12 or so years of my life. Um, well, before we get into the book, uh, one more time on the full title, Khmer Nationalist, Sun Yok Tan, the CIA and the Transformation of Cambodia. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how did you come to this research project? What was your intellectual trajectory? Yeah, so I it probably dates back to being raised by hippies or wannabe hippies. Um you know, that sort of sentiment or, you know, the music, the movies just, you know, of Vietnam being raised by, you know, parents that, you know, were in college in the early to mid 70s. Um, that was just kind of a thing. And it just kind of was normal. Um, so it was just kind of always around. My dad was a, a history major. Um you know, just he just got the bachelor's in that, but his was he was always really interested in history, and I think I just kind of always had that sort of interest as well. Um, when it came time to uh, go to 
go to go to college. Uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do exactly. Uh, so my my undergraduate degree is actually in marketing. Uh, my minor was in history because I'm like, well, I want to do something for the minor that I like. So I'll do history. And I just did the marketing because I figured I'd be able to get a job or whatever. Because I just wasn't sure. But it turned out I didn't actually want to get a job doing anything like that. And so um, NIU, Northern Illinois University, as a Center for Southeast Asian Studies, really great resources um, on all things interdisciplinary, Southeast Asia related. Um, I just started almost on a whim going there uh, and then developed that into the MA. And then, then I just kept going and uh, looking at Cambodia specifically, um, Northern Illinois University has the language. It has experts in Cam- Khmer history. It has experts in, you know, anthropology, political science, the whole gamut. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something kind of Vietnam War era, but not Vietnam. Uh, so I wanted to, yeah, I think, I think having that backbone at NIU, uh, with the really strong, strong resources in Cambodian history, uh, and Ken Clymer, my advisor for my dissertation, uh, working with me, it just seemed like there, there's a kind of some unexplored avenues maybe we could get into. And so I think that's kind of how I got started in it. And, uh, and then, you know, it just went on and on and on. So, yeah. And you were drawn more to political history. Um, this is, this is really in the, the realm of uh, like traditional political history, right? Right. Well, I, I think just kind of reading, you know, like looking at like a David Chandler or Ken Clymer, my, you know, advisor, um, you know, some of their stuff, this name would kind of crop up Sun Yuk Tan and it would kind of be a little bit mysterious. There's some stuff, some connections with the CIA, it's, it's not exactly clear the full extent. There's a lot of sort of mystery behind that name. And, um, you know, he's kind of mentioned or touched on a bit, you know, and Chandler's really good um, tragedy of, of Cambodian history or, or Ken Clymer stuff or or whatever. But um, there's no deep there's never been a deep dive on him. Um, and so so, what, so what what's what's your elevator pitch for uh, Sun Yuk Tan? I mean, how do you. How do you describe quickly describe his life? And we're gonna we're gonna spend another fifty minutes talking about his life. Yeah. Here. But, but what's your what's your quick pitch? For, like who who was this guy and what does he represent? Yeah, sure. He he represents a few different things. I think one of them is um, during during the French era still is is kind of one of the leading voices for for kind of nationalist independence uh, in Cambodia. Uh, as time moves on, he is he kind of morphs into a role of sort of dissident agitator of Nordam Sihanouk. Uh, he, and through, through that prism, he gets connected with the South Vietnamese government, Thai government and the United States, whether it's U S special forces, U S intelligence. Um, and he's involved in a couple coup attempts, some, one successful, one unsuccessful. Um, and, and yeah, he's prime minister twice of, of Cambodia. Um, and, you know, I, I just thought a kind of an underexplored, uh, figure in sort of this kind of modern, the transitionary period from colonial state to kind of trying to navigate this, this sort of global cold war, um, and, you know, a neutralist in theory country surrounded by enemies, basically is little Cambodia. So, um, and he's a big figure in that, 
And I think you make the point in um, much of the literature on the politics of Southeast Asia in the Cold War, there's this bit of a great man in history narrative, right? So, um, you know, uh, Ho Chi Minh dominates Vietnam, Marcos dominates the Philippines, Sukarno and then Suharto sort of dominate uh, Indonesian history, obviously. And and Cambodian history really is, is the way it's been written, is dominated by Sihanouk and then in many ways this mystery of Pol Pot because it's, you know. Yeah, and the bridge, Lan Nol, the bridge character, I guess, right, between the two. But um, uh, yeah, and, and focusing on Sihanouk Tan, he is, you know, the book is, it's the title of the book, Um he is he is kind of a vehicle, though, for looking at a few different, I think, underexplored topics in modern Cambodian history. So it's not a traditional biography. It is it's not, you know, going through, you know, his personal life in great depth or anything like that. It's kind of using him, the figure, the political figure as a way to examine in some in some deeper depth. These other kind of I, w- I would argue underexplored uh, avenues. Yeah, and I, and I think you also note that um, there isn't a a deep uh, ar- archive regarding him, like there there just isn't that much material, right? It's not a, it's not a ton, and it's hard to hard to find some stuff. David Chandler did do a lot of really good heavy lifting um, uh, in so so many ways in Cambodian history, you know. Um, so he had some papers that he shared with me. Um, that uh, that he acquired over you know years and years and years and years. Um, if you you know are exploring the National Archives in Cambodia, you'll find you know little little breadcrumbs here and there. Same with the archives in the United States. Same with you know going to presidential libraries or or wherever. Um, so it's a lot of kind of it's sort of like one of those you know five thousand piece puzzles where the pieces are really really tiny, and you're also missing like maybe a third of the pieces. Uh, and so it's trying to do that puzzle is basically the process of writing this book. Um, so it's, it was a little tough and challenging, but um, I, I think it came out pretty well. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the title of the book is Khmer Khmer Nationalist, but um, that name gives me a little bit of a clue that um, he may have a bit of a multicultural family heritage, right? So, he is uh, born in South Vietnam. Uh, he's born in Trevin province. He is Kampuchea uh, Krom. So he is, yeah, yeah. He is kind of bridging those two worlds and he does that. That is a, a big feature of, of the book. Um, his his and, connections. And he's, he's got Chinese and Vietnamese heritage. Correct. As well. Yeah. As, yeah. And, and so he, yeah. And that is an ever present part. And I think he, in sort of his grandiose, you know, you know, if we're being realistic, never going to happen sort of visions. Um, he wants to reconnect, you know, the kind of Southern portion of, of modern day Vietnam to the old Angkorian empire of Cambodia. Um, and he, yeah, so he is kind of bridging those things. So it's border border issues with South Vietnam. He is in some ways the sort of perfect person to kind of navigate these things between whether it's the United States government, the United States or U S intelligence, U S special forces. Once we get into the sixties, um, the South Vietnamese government, 
the Thai government. It's very, you know, he is kind of crossing ever, always kind of crossing borders in this kind of ever present agitating sort of thing. The, his, the bet noir, if you will, for uh, Nordam Sinuk. And his identity as, as being Kampachikram is a big part of, I think, who he is and how he acts will and we'll kind of see that throughout his life. Yeah, and I, I think that factoring in the um, the Kampuchea Krom story, like, uh, is something one of the for several things your book does in adding complexity and nuance to this political history. Um, you know that 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 becomes such an important factor um, once the Khmer Rouge take power and like they're hunting down of of Kampuchea uh, Krom, what they're suspicious of, and then the border raids and so forth. Yeah, <laughs> correct, correct, and it's. Yeah, it's in Sun Yuk Tan's rhetoric. It's in some of Lan Nol's rhetoric. It is in Pol Pot's rhetoric. It is, you know, kind of throughout this kind of post-French era, uh, the rhetoric of the kind of greater empire or Angkorian empire uh, and sort of reconstituting that in some way is, is a, you know, maybe misguided goal, but uh, it is it is there. Uh, through throughout that these decades that we're going to be discussing, yeah, yeah, and it, it also I, I think that that resonates with um, some of the complexity that um, Ben Kiernan tried to bring to Vietnamese history with his recent big thick textbook uh, treatment of uh, Vietnam, where one of the things he stresses um, when talking about the South of Vietnam is the centuries long significance of the Cambodian presence. And that the ethnicity is much, much more fluid than older nationalist narratives would lead us to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, it is it's for that reason that a lot of these Kampuchee Krom, Khmer Krom are sort of selected by, you know, CIDG, civilian regular defense groups in, in Vietnam for for work in the war. In the in the Vietnam War, um, they are a huge. You know, you maybe think mountain yards or something like that is I'm a big aspect of the CIDG, but in four core, the you know southernmost of the four partitions, if you will, of of, of designation for the for the U.S. Um, for the military in in, in Vietnam, that seventy percent are Khmer Krom, ethnically Khmer, yeah. In in four core, yeah, in the in the southern the southernmost district area. Okay, area. That, that, yeah. okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, and that would make sense. I mean, that's that's their home turf. I mean, that that those are the people of this area. Huh. interesting. Um, so this this book is a a political biography organized in chronological form. So let's go through um, the chapters uh, in the book uh, one by one. Um, you give an introduction with a historical perspective, and then chapter one is. Uh, the first independence, 1908-1946, and this covers uh, Sun Dung, uh Tan's early life. I mean, he's born in 1908, right? Yeah, his early life and then his early career as a nationalist. And I mean, fairly young, he's a prominent player in the um, the nationalist movement uh, under French colonial rule, right? Right. Yeah, he, yeah, so yeah, he's born in, in Travin in, in South Vietnam, uh, or Southern Vietnam, I guess. Uh, he is... Um, it well, seems at that, like at that, time, at that time it was a uh, coach in China. Co- or yeah, coach in China. Right. Yeah. I guess we've got a, our ter- terminology is going to change a few times <laughs> throughout these few decades. Um, yeah, he, 
he it does go to school in in France in Paris. Uh, so we don't have a lot of great records on like, you know, the exact situation of his family. It's his father's a landowner of some sort. And so it seems what, like what, they must be at what, least. What years was he educated in France? So 30, he comes back in 1933. So he would have been about 25 when he returns. That's, so, that's early, huh? So that, that's not that, that generate the, the infamous generation that go and, in like 52, 53 that, um, uh, Pope. No, he's living in the jungle in those years. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So this is, this is early on, um, uh, sort of high colonial, uh, education. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of the interwar years and in France and it's kind of this, you know, like it, the intellectual stimulation must've been, you can assume, you know, really, really strong. And he comes back, you know, he is not a, um, card-carrying communist or anything like that. He comes back and gets involved pretty quickly with uh, the Buddhist Institute, which is um, a, boy, it is a kind of a modernization of, of Buddhism, but focusing on Khmer at the same time. So it's a nationalistic Buddhist Institute. And it's which, through- Which the, Penny Edwards wrote about, but it, ironically is created by the French and they've got a they've got a strong project, right? Trying to- tell the Cambodians they're Khmer and not Thai and therefore create that boundary. Right. 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 Yeah. And her, her book is really, really good and is a, was a great helpful source in the early, you know, and kind of investigating some of these early Buddhist connections. Uh, So yeah, I really recommend her source. Um, It is called Cambodge, 1860 to 1845. Uh, Cambodge, the cultivation of a nation. That's right. Okay. And in playing the terminology um, game, she's really adamant, like call it Cambodge in this time period because it's this French construct, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, so it's through that, through the Buddhist Institute when he, I think has kind of his nationalist sort of instincts are maybe nurtured, developed. Uh, he, he, through that is recruiting and potentially nationalist minded monks uh, to, make a little bit of a longer story, a little shorter. It, it is kind of leading up to a, uh, once, once the war begins and, and Japan has taken power, but France is running day-to-day operations. Um, he, he sort of sees potentially a, maybe this is a chance to throw off, uh, throw out the French and, he is in a lot of his rhetoric. If you look at his some of his writings, some of his letters from this era, he is if he's writing to a Japanese official, for instance, he is definitely playing up the oh, we are all on board for the uh, Asia for Asians uh, stuff that you guys have been talking about. We we love that uh, here in Cambodia. And so it is not exactly clear if he's just really naive or if he and I, I would probably uh, if I had to, if I had to lean what direction, I would lean in this way. He is using that rhetoric in those co- uh, connections to kind of use Japan, the presence of Japan, to get the French out. So he hopes the the plan. There is a plan for after the arrest of a of a prominent Buddhist monk in 1942. There's a big demonstration. Uh, the kind of becomes known as kind of the uh, you know the umbrella demonstration. That where, you know, it's thousands are demonstrating in front of the kind of uh, French colonial residents there. And the plan is that 
Japanese uh, military officials are going to kind of come to their aid. Uh, that does not happen. Things get kind of too chaotic. Uh, France, French officials kind of, you know, intervene, kind of put down, arrest a bunch of the demonstrators. And Sun Yuk-tan, with Japanese aid, flees to Batambong and then to Bangkok. And he soon finds himself in in Japan. So he will spend about two and a half years in Japan during the war. Uh, he assumes a Burmese identity. He uh, he becomes a, I believe it was a corporal in the Japanese military. He is wow. so he is all um, the. I, I think Japan's perspective is they're kind of stashing this pretty prominent figure, which he is in Cambodia at that time. He is known as kind of this nationalist anti-French figure. Uh, and so I think from Japan's perspective, when the time is right, maybe they could bring him back to Cambodia uh, and insert him into a position of power. And he will, you know, be play nice, I guess, which is sort of what happens. He comes back in May of 1945. He's welcomed back. He uh, becomes uh, minister of foreign affairs and then prime minister. So he's prime minister in, in 1945 of Cambodia. And that lasts for a few months till the war ends. But, but that's, that's what you reference in the, um, in the title of this chapter, this is the first independence. So it's not an official independence. I mean, the France would still very much like its colony, but after um, March 9th, 45, the Japanese displace everybody. And so there's this, this sort of uh, twilight moment. I don't know what, what's, what the right term for it is, but like, They've 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 declared their independence, but it's not recognized. Right. And Japan, quote unquote, is recognizing it, but it is not a recognized independence by anyone else, really. Um, so, yeah, it's the first independence. It's a very loose term. It's this kind of brief fleeting. And I think Sun Yuk-tan's mind, um, hey, this is the path forward. We were going to we're going to forge our path ahead uh, in alliance with Japan. And we'll work with them uh, in Asia. And, you know, that's the idea. And it doesn't obviously last. France, French and British troops come back. He's arrested. He is taken to France, put under a house arrest. And I, I don't think it was, um, you know, brutal, brutal life or anything like that uh, there. But he is there for till 1951. So from... 46 to 51 yeah he's so, in... yeah he's it's in the fall of 45 is when he's arrested so okay because so that, that's your next chapter in your next chapter uh, uh return return to exile so yeah so first he has this exile in Japan and then comes back and has a moment of of power and then is arrested now by the French sent to France in in did you say 45 or 46 yeah at the end of 45 he's yeah in the fall of 45 he's arrested and and then how yeah. long is he there for until till 1951 so then what what he comes back in 51 so, and... so he comes back he is there's a hero's welcome for him with giant signs and banners and thousands of people are waiting at the airport and this is our nationalist independence leader and this is where He's, already, he's already had problems with Nordam Sinek, who, to back up very, very, very briefly, is appointed maybe as this sort of pliable youngster by the French. Um, and uh, he, t t so 
Sihanouk is the is king of France or France of Cambodia at this time. Um, when Sun Yuk Tan comes back, he is still agitating for independence from France. France has obviously returned. They're in the midst in Vietnam of fighting a war, First Sino-Chinese War. And it's called return to exile because he's only kind of in, you know, Phnom Penh for a couple months, right? He pretty soon starts his sort of agitative ways again. He begins another newspaper. Uh, well, he I didn't mention his first one, Nagaravata, um, which is in the 1930s. In this the is, 30s. This is, yeah, Nagaravata is right. the nationalist newspaper, right? Right. It's a nationalist newspaper. Uh, founded by him and one other, and and he began. He starts another one, Khmer um, Krok, and this one there's not what just lasts a couple months. And he is by doing things like that, by being politically active, he is breaking his the 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 what I don't know the that's not his bond Cond- conditions of France, his parole. But his conditions <laughs> of his parole. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he he flees to the jungle in the north northwest Cambodia. And so he is back in exile. So he is agitating for independence from the outside. Okay. He has a large political following. The Democrats uh, political party in Cambodia are very, very much aligned with Sun Yuk Tan. They are the leading political party, you know, from the kind of late forties into the early fifties, you know, the most powerful one. And Sihanouk, in an attempt to, and I argue, an attempt to neutralize, um, neutralize a lot of Sun Yuk Tan's political power and influence, starts to move away from what has been sort of slow transitionary steps towards maybe some political independence in Cambodia from France or whatever to a more hardline stance over the intervening couple of years when, you know, kind of climaxes in 1953 uh, when they do gain independence. And Sun Yuk Tan does credit Sihanouk for that. And he speaks for a very brief period of time, glowingly of Sun, of Sihanouk's, you know, path to, toward independence. But Sun Yuk Tan is the, I argue, the kind of driver for Sihanouk moving in that more hardcore direction hmm. because Sihanouk is, is, is not nearly as militant about complete independence from France as Sun Yuk Tan and Sun Yuk Tan's political followers are. Mm-hmm. So Cambodia gets independence in, in 53 and there's initially this moment where uh, he's, he's praising Sihanouk. And then uh, this chapter three lost in the wilderness takes us from 1955 to 1959. And I'm going to guess by the title lost in the wilderness, we have the not return to exile, but return to the Maquis return to <laughs> or, insurgency. Yeah. It's more jungle life. Uh, correct. Correct. Yeah. There, it seems like there's a brief period where maybe there might've been an opportunity to kind of come back and join the government in some form, but that, that passes quite quickly. He is, uh, back in. And so his, his calling card, right. Anti-French colonialism is now not a thing, right. Mm -hmm. They're gone. So now it morphs to, anti full on anti Sihanouk. And so he agitates against Sihanouk, you know, through the rest of the decade. Um, the Kamai Iserak group, well, there there are multiple groups that can be referred to as the Iseraks, and they are they kind of span the ideological spectrum. Um, 
there's a Vietnamese communist, Sun Yuk Min, who takes that nom de guerre, Sun Yuk Min, as sort of, you know, borrowing from Sun Yuk Tan and Ho Chi Minh uh, to kind of gain some sort of, you know, maybe credibility or, or pa- uh, cachet or something like that. Um, a lot of, you know, in this era, many U.S. intelligence reports kind of like think that he's Sun Yuk Tan's brother or that they're related or somehow, but it's not. Sun Yuk Min is a nom de guerre, but he's, you know, a communist. He's an Isarak. There are there are Isarak communists, there are Isarak more conservative right wing, which would be Sun Yuk Tan. Um, so it's not a co it's not a like a coalescing band of dissidents, right? It's a little bit haphazard. But it seems like there might be a possibility for some action. Um, this is during the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower, new look foreign policy. Eisenhower, big fan of covert intelligence. You know, if you look at Guatemala, look at, you know, Iran or whatever. Um, happens in Cambodia too, but it almost happens, we should say. Dap Chuan is... Uh, kind of a governor of, of in Siem Reap province. He is a military man. He is runs things in that province very, you know, with a very tight grip. And, you know, after doing some digging, there are, he, along with Sun Yuk Tan and others, attempt a coup, working with the CIA to overthrow Nordam Sihanouk in 1959. And this Sihanouk basically sniffs it out and puts it down before it can actually get going, going. But a CIA operator is caught on the ground, Victor Matsui. They have uh, radio transmitters from the CIA. They have, they have uh, gold uh, doubloons. They have captured uh, materials from South Vietnam, from the South Ngodin Diem's government, because uh, they're working in close cohorts with Diem, because Diem is no fan of Sihanouk uh, either. Uh, and then working with the Thai government as well. So you on both sides of Cambodia, uh, South Vietnam and Thailand, you have more conservative governments that are not too thrilled with maybe Sihanouk's proclaimed neutralism, but also, you know, m- leaning leftist, we will say. Uh, the United States is no fan of that either. And so you have um, an attempt at an overthrow in 1959, uh, and so that was a fun, uh, a fun one to uncover and discover uh, during the research process. But but Sinuk's able to to nip that in the bud. Yeah, and, and... he sniffs it out, and uh, Dap Chuan is um, he is uh, killed while attempting to escape. In air quotes, uh-huh. is the okay. official line. Um, so. Is, is the fighting in Siem Reap or is it actually they, disturbing? Yes, they're, they're busted in Siem Reap, right? They don't get to the point where they are like, an, they're attempting assassination or anything. They're caught kind of building up to that. Um, but the CIA is definitely involved. Uh, this is uh, one of the things, fun things to find at the uh, Kennedy Library uh, was... Mm-hmm. Uh, the transcripts of a conversation on, it was November 20th, 1963, uh, between Kennedy and Roger Hillsman discussing this. And he said, is it, Kennedy asked Hillsman, is that true, that whole 59 coup thing? And Hillsman doesn't get into too many specifics because of plausible deniability and everything, but he says, yes, it's true. The 59 thing is true. We did. 
um, we did support that. And Kennedy basically is just like, damn it. What the hell, man? Like, what the hell is Eisenhower doing? You know, um, And you can hear that conversation. Oh, this is, this is, is days before Dallas. That is two days before he's killed. Wow. And that is one of the, you know, Kennedy's tapes are not nearly as extensive as, as, as uh, Nixon's, of course, but that is a taped conversation. So you can hear that actual tape of that conversation as well. Wow. And it covers a few other interesting yeah. uh, aspects. They're, prob- too. they're probably not as colorful as the LBJ tapes. <laughs> but, but we we don't have to get into that. Okay, Not so moving on. Pants. Yeah, <laughs> moving on. Um, so chapter four, uh, the breaking point, 1960, 1964. So now this guy's gone, uh, been part of a failed coup, and so where is he for these next four years? Yeah, so he is. This is when he is working. This is the Khmer Sarai group starts in 1959. Um, Free Khmer. So they are groups of. Khmer Krom that work with intelligence, U.S. intelligence, and their goal is overthrowing Sinuk still. So, Sinuk so Khan if, is- if, they're, if they're Khmer Krom, are they now southeast? Are they in yeah, the border? So, the border region? So, so they're on they're on both borders. They are on the border of South on South Vietnam and the Thai border. So they. But so his, his, his political career has gone from uh, the the Northwest up in Siem Reap. And now he's right. on the other side of Cambodia. Right. Working with an entirely different crew of allies. Right. But yeah, U S intelligence or would kind of ferry, um, Khmer Krom from the South Vietnamese side to the Thai border. Uh, and so there were basically outposts on both borders. Oh, okay. Okay. Khmer Sarai. So and okay. Son Yuk Tan is the titular figurehead of this group or whatever. At the same time, you have this is the CIDG is getting started. CIDG start was it actually CIA created in 1961, kind of morphs and kind of becomes absorbed into MACV in 1963. But from its in, in inception, it is CIA. Um, so he is also recruiting Khmer Krom for the CIDG. So you have. Khmer Krom working with the CIDG, so working with the U.S. and you working with U.S. Special Forces. So Sun Yuk Tan is involved in that whole procedure. And then the Khmer Sarai are the, it's not that they're not affiliated with the CIDG because I don't know, they kind of are, but they are, they are the quote unquote independent um, <laughs> agitators, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they are most, for the most part, they are agitators towards Sihanouk. Um, they don't have huge numbers, right? They are not yeah, capable I'm of curious, curious about the numbers. Do you, do you have, do right. you no, able to I mean, you know, that? at its peak, it's a couple thousand or, or a few thousand, yeah. right. At, at the best, um, they are, you know, they have radio transmitters and so they'll be broadcasting from, uh, you know, Sihanouk must go blah, 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 you know, attempting to gain popular support for these ideas through these radio transmitters. That's one of the things Kennedy was talking to Hillsman about. Kasinik would incessantly complain about these radio broadcasts and how mm-hmm. the U.S. could, if it wanted to, do something about them, but they wouldn't. And Kennedy has no idea, you know, why does he keep saying about these broadcasters, radio, you know, he's asking Hillsman about this. And Hillsman's like, well, yeah, you know, there maybe has been kind of some involvement with some of these groups, you know, again, plausible deniability, not getting into much detail. Um, and, so, yeah, and that they was are, the 
that was a key strategy in uh, Guatemala in um, in overthrowing uh, the Arbenz regime, uh, the the radio transmissions, and mm-hmm. they they sort of created the sense that there was a much stronger force An against the government right. than there really was, right? right? Right. Yeah, they're broadcasting. These are broadcasts from the mountains and kind of mostly from the mountains in the northwest or the mm-hmm. west in Cambodia. Um, yeah. So so again, he is, I think, getting closer to the Americans, uh, American special forces, and they are viewed as a pretty valuable force. These Khmers are trained up really well and become a really good fighting force for special forces fighting in Vietnam, this, I guess, gets us into 1965 to 70 era too, but um, they, they become a really, really significant part of that. Okay. So that, uh, that's going on for several years. And then chapter five is path to power. And this looks at the last uh, five years of Shinok's rule. What is, uh, what is uh, Son Yuk Tan doing in this era? More of the same, um, more, <laughs> more of the same. More, more Mackie, more, more jungle. More, more, right, exactly, yeah. I mean, this dude spent, I mean, just decades, you know, roughing it. Um, in and out of roughing it, I should say, because, you know, when he's in Saigon or working on recruitment, you know, he, he's not roughing it. But um, it is, yeah, he is this kind of lost, wandering figure. I mean, at this point, he's about 60 years old, and he's yeah. been at this for a long time and um it is yeah so it's more agitating the U- the u.s and cambodia break relations well scenic breaks relations with the united states in 1965 they've broken relations with south vietnam in 1963 because south vietnam is continuing to give support for uh for Khmer sarai for for sun yuk tan um these cross-border raids um you know the u.s you know, military would say, oh, maybe we were chasing Viet Cong or something across the border. Uh, bombs mistakenly, in air quotes, mistakenly falling on the wrong side of the border in Cambodia. Uh, all this stuff kind of adds up over a long time to see in a lead into the break of diplomatic relations, which won't be restored till 1969. But Sun Yuk He's still the agitator. He's still working to build up and train these forces. And this kind of culminates in the, you know, coup is a really good shorthand for it because it's actually kind of an official ouster um, through the National Assembly in 1970 of Nordam Sinuk. Um, but we'll just call it coup because it pretty much was that. Um, Sinuk is maybe being in the eyes of conservatives in Cambodia, like Lon Nol, military figures, uh, Sun Yuk Tan, he is being way too cozy to communists, uh, or Vietnamese communists, at least. He's not cozy to communists that are in Cambodia. Right. We, but, we, we, we now know he struck a deal with the Vietnamese communists to let them use uh, Eastern Cambodian territory in exchange yeah. for um, grain shipments or... So, right. So that would be the kind of coziness that somebody like Lon Noel would be very much, or Sun Yuk Tan would be very much against. That's kind of the, the excuse, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. given for, to lead to his ouster in May of 70. And in this chapter in the book, some people have written on this, um, you know, Chandler does a really nice job. Ken Clymer does a really nice job. Others have done it, you know. Um, What I wanted to do was kind of gather what new stuff I did have and kind of add those once again to the puzzle piece 
uh, analogy, uh, add those puzzle pieces to that pretty decent picture that I think we had of U.S. involvement in this. And I think it's a little bit clear that the U.S. probably, uh, let's say highly probably, was involved. Uh, they did not have, you know, U.S. forces on the ground, but U.S. is is probably highly plausibly, highly probably advising and behind the scenes giving support to this group. And a lot of those uh, members that kind of lead this charge are Khmer Krom or Khmer Sarai. And, you know, I think there is a lot to be said for the Trojan horse theory, which is many, many, many Khmer Sarai, quote unquote, surrender to the Sihanouk government um, in the months ahead of time. And they are basically just kind of repurposed into the Lonnell's army at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, but they are not allegiant to Sihanouk at all. So yeah, there is, there are some really good, um, man, some really good dives, um, looking at in, in the book, kind of getting into the weeds a bit on, on, you know, like the Thornton letter where he describes some of the contacts and, and, and discussions with intelligence figures, U S intelligence figures, support for the coup, um, whatnot. So there, there are a lot of, there's still a lot of loose ends. This is not a done done deal. Done. This story is not fully told. There is more to go and investigate with this story. But my hope is that I kind of added a bit to it and kind of clarified some of it and clarified Sun Yuk Tan's role with it. He, on the record, claims, yeah, CIA was involved. I worked with the CIA. We planned it out together. Um, so that's him saying it. I don't know if I would take what he says at 100% face value, but he there's a lot of other smoke around that fire as well at the same time. So, uh, yeah, that was a that was a fun and and tough chapter to to work on. Yeah, yeah. So then, um, chapter six, um, always an outsider, looks at um, really his final years as a political player from 1970 to 1972. Um, what's his role in the early years of the Lon Nol regime? Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, hey, you did it, right? This whole, your goal for the past, you know, how many decades has come true. Scenic's gone. Uh, you have a a uh, republic go- government you uh, that uh, that is maybe swayed more toward your political persuasion. Um, what, what are you going to do next? And, you know, he's not going to Disney World. He's going to find himself continuing to, Mike, get ready for this, continue recruiting for the U.S. Special Forces, training up those guys. That's what he's doing a lot of in the initial period, you know, 1970, 1971. He is made like, I'm forgetting the exact language of the title, but it's essentially an economic, head of economic position in the Lonnell government. The economy is not doing well. uh, And it is seen as, man, this could be you know, significant for him politically, if he does well and is able to get the economy turned around a bit. Uh, He is, so he is on the periphery. He is not kind of a main player in the government. He is still a popular, for the most part, figure though. You know, young intellectuals, students, monks have for decades been, he's had their support. Uh, He Finally, this has to do with a whole lot of different kind of in, inner workings within Lon Knoll's 
cabinet uh, and Lon Noel's health and all this stuff. But he eventually finds himself in March, March 20th, 1972, prime minister again. Yeah, and he had been prime minister in what, 45. Right. And now in 1972. And now yeah. in 1972. So he is prime minister for the second time. He's also kind of directs foreign affairs. Uh, and so this this only lasts until the fall. So it's, you know, what, what, roughly six months or so in this position. And it is a highly neutered position. He doesn't have a lot of political power as prime minister. But I think from Lon Knowles perspective, boy, um, we there's a lot of people aren't super thrilled with how things are going, you know, in the civil war with Khmer Rouge, aren't how well things are going with my government. Sun Yuk Tan, relatively speaking, kind of a popular guy. Uh, he might be able to bridge some of those gaps. So let's bring him into the fold officially, officially. And so he is brought in for that period of time. There is a an assassination attempt is made. Uh, on his life right in front of the, he's in a car and there are a couple mines kind of strapped with a wire right, right in front of, of the Royal palace palace there street. I've walked many, many times and right on the, on the river or on right, right. Correct. Right on the river. That's where his office is, uh, overlooks the river there and Cambodiana hotel and that whole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's right, right at that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's been 10 years since I've been there, but yeah, really, really nice area today. Um, and two mines are strapped. Only one of them detonates. So I think the damage could have been a lot worse. He may have been killed in this. Three of the bodyguards that were with him in the in this vehicle are injured. Uh, a monk on a bike is severely injured, but he is not killed. It's also not clear who that came from. There are, if you want to get into, you know, Rumorville, you know, could have been Lon Knoll's brother, Lon Nan, is in Rumorville, maybe involved. But anyways, yeah, that gets so so he's kind of sent out to pasture, if you will, in September 1972. And he goes back to South Vietnam. And yeah, so that, that's that's your conclusion, right? The uh, an unglamorous ending. He yeah, he, and he it's retirement. it is he goes unglamorous. He is he he says he's retired. Um, you know, and at that point he is you know what sixty four. So um, yeah, I guess retirement age, maybe even still in France. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sixty four in France now. <laughs> is it sixty four in France now? Okay, yeah. But, so, but again, so, it, it's it's not the years; it's the miles. I mean, this is. He had some decades mileage. of living in the jungle, and I right. mean, just, just I was just contemplating this guy's life, and it's just astounding. Um, yeah, the, that toll that must have taken on him physically. Right. Well, it his he continues doing what he does, Mike, in his last kind of few years there, which is working with the United States Special Forces and recruiting more guys and training them up. And you know, he's back and forth a little bit, but for the most part, he's back in what he considers his home in South Vietnam. And, and, th- and th- those are those spooky years. So like if he's, if he's going to Saigon in the fall of 72, the United States uh, ends the war in January. Right. Yeah. But the war doesn't end. Right. We've got yeah. two more years. The United and that's, States ends. It's that's when portion. things get really spooky, yeah. like in terms of spy craft and all yep. sorts of stuff. Right. So what, yeah, yeah. He, he's organizing, um, Khmer Krom 
troops in South Vietnam? Yeah, in South Vietnam still, still to fight and uh, to go fight in Cambodia. And is it against Norman? Khmer Rouge? Yeah. Against mm-hmm. okay, against Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, the, support, the, the Khmer Sarai form. You know, the former Khmer Sarai. After they become integrated into Lon Nol's army, they are the best and the brightest. Like they are the best trained, best soldiers, and they get completely decimated almost immediately um, because they're at the front lines of all this of all the fighting against the Khmer Rouge. And after that, you know that then then you're working with you know then you get into the whole ghost ghost soldier thing and very very incompetent. Uh, and, and a lot of corruption and everything associated with the, the military in Cambodia. In, in South Vietnam, um, Norman Lewis was, uh, he wrote, uh, what is it, A Dragon Apart, is it the name of it? He did some investigative work around this time, uh, meeting with some of these, you know, Khmer Sarai that would get kind of trained up at this specific temple, would kind of be the meeting spot. And uh, they, they said... Um, that uh, oh, and Ho Chi Minh's last will and testament that uh, he said that Sun Yuk Tan, anybody that worked with him is 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 cool essentially because just like Ho Chi Minh was you know fighting for you know freedom and liberation, Sun Yuk Tan was doing the same thing. And so somehow this is not true, but somehow this is a rumor that is spread among a lot of the Khmer Sarai. You know, as you're getting this is like toward you know the end like when the writing's on the wall and it seems like 74 74 75 and it's like the writing's yeah. on the wall saigon they, they, they think they've got a ho chi Minh get a get out of jail free card they, some of them do think that correct yeah which turns out to not be the case it's not the case for sun yuk tan himself either he is imprisoned uh he passes so, away so, so just just to slow, slow you down a bit so yeah uh saigon falls slash liberated uh perspective April 30th, uh, April yeah. 30th 1975 and uh now the show's over so he's been collaborating with American special forces for 15 plus years on both sides of the border so he's a long time yeah so he's he, he's definitely on a list right yeah and he it doesn't take long he is taken prisoner uh and he is suffering from diabetes at this point. So his health is not good. He's, you know, a relatively speaking, older, older gentleman. Uh, he languishes for about two years in the Chihua prison. He passes away on August 8th, 1977. Uh, a family member that was imprisoned with him uh, there also, a, you know, worked, worked with him, Khmer Sarai. Uh, said Sun Yuk Tan refused to collaborate in any way, refused to give any sort of information at all, refused anything uh, for the victorious North Vietnamese and um, probably passed away from a combination of hunger strike slash, you know, the diabetes and other health ills he was suffering at, uh, at that point, nearly 70 years old. Yeah. So what is the significance of his life? I mean, what, what 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 does this all mean? Well, that's a good question. What does it all mean? Um, <laughs> I, I think it means that nationalism. I think it means a few things, right? I think it helps us better understand kind of nationalist inspirations against the French during that era, 
So I think that's kind of one sort of section. Uh, I think another thing it helps us better understand is what is the U.S. involvement like in Cambodia? Um, Kent Clymer has a two-volume series on United States relations with Cambodia. So that's an essential place to go for that full big picture story. But if you want to get a little more in the weeds, I think this is a great kind of companion piece to that in that it helps flush out some of that story in, in some more detail, flush out some of that story with, with U.S. intelligence, with with U.S. special forces and that their relationship with Sun Yuk Tan and kind of what, why is he so involved and so dedicated to this? He's involved, his involvement with South Vietnamese government, his involvement with Thailand, his involvement with Ko Tong in Taiwan. He's involved with them too. And he goes there at one point to meet with, to meet with leadership there to attempt to get support from them. So it is the kind of that whole relationship with the, the more conservative quote unquote nationalist uh, ide- ideology that Sun Yuk Tan has is, is a good one to flush out in some more detail. And hopefully my book does that as well. So, so that's what I hope it contributes to is a little bit of better understanding in, in kind of those two sort of different yet connected elements. Yeah. And, and what I appreciate is um, here's really important political history of Cambodia that intersects at certain moments uh, with the Khmer Rouge, but it's, that's not the 300 pound gorilla dominating uh, the narrative, right? Like there's, there's these other political movements, things could have gone a very different way. And, you know, as as many historians like Showcross and others have argued, you know, it was was the bombing in the early seventies that really set on this different track. So getting more complexity, more nuance, more detail in the political history of the fifties and especially the 1960s, I think is really invaluable. Right. Because after it's it's very simplistic, like everything's just leading up to the horrors that start on April 17th, uh, 1975. And then, you know, su- suddenly end in 1979, like that's Cambodian history. There's a much, <laughs> much more going on. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, yeah, I appreciate your words on that. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of thing. You know, it's not, it's maybe it's been overlooked. And so that's my, my hope is to kind of uncover uh, a bit of that. Um, Cambodia as a whole uh, is, I think, overlooked uh, in the history in, in Southeast Asia and kind of is dwarfed, obviously, by uh, Vietnam, uh, which, you know, you know, in terms of, you know, historians in the United States have given that tons of, you know, a lot of really good work and, and attention. But this is, you know, it's part of that same from the U.S. perspective story. And it's not one that has been told in any detail. So it, I think it helps flesh out the story of the war in Vietnam as well. Great. Great. So you've been really generous with your time, but I've got two more questions for you. And these are, these are the traditional uh, new books network debriefing questions. Uh, okay. We've, we've brought you in from the, uh, from the field, from the Mech. Okay. Um, uh, can you suggest two books for the audience? Uh, book of the week. Uh <laughs> Yes, I, I've already mentioned a couple. So yeah, let me let me mention Kenton Clymer's two volume series, U.S. Cambodia relations, uh, the the Penny Edwards book, um, which covers basically the French era, is 
for looking at kind of developments of like kind of nationalist thought and everything in Cambodia. That one's kind of yeah. invaluable. Uh, um, Cambodge cultivation of a nation. I Cambodge cultivation. I'm also, of a, nation, I'm also a Edwards fan. She's just yeah. awesome. Um, Bill Rust, Eisenhower, and Cambodia is taking a look at. Uh, can you guess, Mike? <laughs> Covert operations. <laughs> Eisenhower and Cambodia. Yeah, yeah. It's looking at that roughly eight-year period of time, uh, which will, of course, include um, kind of some covert operations in Cambodia. But uh, that's, that's radios. relatively... Radios. Yeah, some radios. Mm-hmm. And that's a relatively recent one that's, uh, that's, that's a good, you know, pretty straightforward U.S. diplomatic history. So let me add, I'm going to throw that and add that uh, to the pile. That's all right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We got a couple. Uh, and then finally, what are you working on now? Um, what can we hope to see from you next? That's a hell of a question, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I am uh, 99% of all my efforts go toward, of course, the uh, podcast Napalm in the Morning. Um, so when I'm not working on that, um, it is it is sticking with U.S. Southeast Asia. It is kind of getting... I don't have an an exact topic that I have officially started working on, but it is in that realm. I am putting feelers out there. I have a couple, I have a few ideas that I'm kind of sprinkling on a couple people and uh, kind of get, kind of see where those lead me. And hopefully, in the you know coming months, something more concrete is is here, and I can uh, get get set getting into some heavy research and, and writing all the fun stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Hey Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate you having me. And uh, thanks to your listeners for sticking with me through 58 minutes. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Matthew Yeagle about Khmer nationalist, uh, Sun Yuk Don, the CIA and the Transformation of Cambodia at with Cornell University Press in 2023. You can also catch Matt as co-host of Napalm in the Morning, the Vietnam War through film. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>